We got to hear from Rabbi Dr. Jacob Staub earlier in the year here about some of the ideas and pieces of Reconstructionism going forward, some of the history of it. Um, we're going to have something a little bit different tonight. Reconstructionist Judaism stipulates that we live in two civilizations. Uh, we live in the West, in the U.S., in all of this world of California, and we also live in, Jew- in Judaism. We live in Jewish time, we live in Jewish tradition, and we live in Jewish text. And as we live in both of these traditions, uh, it's powerful to look at the ways in which uh, we do live in text, and we live in conversation and dialogue with text, the way in which it informs our lives and our stories as well. So tonight we're going to spend some time with text and spend some time in that conversation. So it is my honor and privilege to introduce Rabbi Dr. Stephen Sager, director of Sicha. He is the Rabbi Emeritus of Bethel Synagogue in Durham, North Carolina, my home synagogue in point of fact, where he served as rabbi for 32 years. He is a graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and earned a PhD in rabbinic literature from Duke University. Rabbi Sager has been a teacher, rabbinic advisor, and mentor for students and graduates of the RRC, Hebrew Union College, the Jewish Theological Seminary, and the Rabbinical School of the Boston Hebrew College. Rabbi Sager is an adjunct faculty member of the Duke Divinity School and has taught at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the Department of Social Medicine in the University of North Carolina Medical School. Rabbi Sager is a senior rabbinic fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, where he is also a leader of the rabbinic program's advisory committee and the rabbinic Havara program. He has served as part of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical Assembly and of the Greater Carolinas Association of Rabbis. In addition, he is the director of the Sicha program, an ongoing Jewish learning and text program, which I am uh, pleased to study with him uh, as one of his rabbis who is getting to learn on an ongoing basis. In addition to the bio that I just read, um, I've gotten to learn with Rabbi Sager for, I guess, 20 years now, just about. And uh, he is one of the finer teachers of text that I have ever had the privilege to encounter. So without saying anything more, let's get into the text. Rabbi Sager. Thank you. Sing with me for a moment. Eliyahu Hanavi Eliyahu Atishpi Everyone knew how to join in. We didn't have to teach that song, that sentiment to anyone. Any scratch and sniff moments coming to you? (laughs) Have you opened the door for Elijah? As a child, perhaps, as an adult, even? Eliyahu Navi is our topic this evening. How does Eliyahu Navi stand in line with a reflection of or looking through the lens of a Reconstructionist Judaism? Well, Eliyahu represents the deep commitment to religious imagination, 
Judaism's deep commitment to religious imagination. Elijah is a character for all times. Elijah captures and embodies the conversation of all generations. How do I know that? Well, I see him in the Bible, and I hear his stories from the ancient sages, and I hear songs about him and piyutim about him, that is to say, religious poetry, such as the chorus that we all know to sing. Furthermore, I have encountered him every Passover of my life, as have you. Well, here's a character who moves easily through the generations, who affirms and confirms that which is important and that which is true about Jewish tradition and about Jews. He shows up at my Passover Seder and at yours, and he says, ah, this is a Seder. This is a Pesach Seder. This isn't the Haggadah that they used in the 16th century. This isn't the way in which it was done in the days of my old friend, the third century sage, Yoshua ben Levi. This is not the way Pesach was back in the day of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Nevertheless, I recognize this as Pesach. You see, the conversation that continues to continue involves and embodies Eliyahu Hanavi. He is a screen against which we project our highest goals and aspirations and our deepest concerns, fantasies, hopes. He is a character for all time. And when on a beautiful spring evening, Pesach came late that year, my brother Barry opened the door for Elijah, my father yelled to him, Get out of the way. He won't be able to come in. Barry pushed the screen door open. Oh, my father had already replaced the heavy. I come from the East Coast. (laughs) The heavy storm door, the wintertime door, had replaced it with a screen door so that our unair-conditioned house would be ventilated for the Seder. So the door was easy enough to open, and Barry, a few years younger than I, pushed the door open and stood right in the middle of the door. My father said, get out of the way, he won't be able to come in. And then he laughed and everybody else laughed too, just like you did, for a second or two. And then things became a little bit more self-conscious. Well, it was just for a second or two that everybody thought about the real possibility the door was being opened for someone who was really going to come in. That's the Elijah, just the Elijah that we meet every single year when the door is opened and we're filled with hope and we're filled with imagination and we're filled with possibility. And he is an Elijah who changes. He is an Elijah who attends to the shifts, to the rhythms, to the texts and the textures, to the colors, to the philosophy. He is just what we need him to be, both ancient and also modern. I can't really think of too many better ways of describing what Reconstructionism at its best would be. Reconstructionism without its, without its ancient texts is ungrounded. How can you reconstruct something if there has been no construction? There has to be a construction. There has to be post and lintel. 
There has to be hinge and doorway. Without those things, there is nothing to remodel. There's nothing to redo or to renew. Elijah represents our capacity for joining the past to a present that will bring us into a future. Elijah, in the scrapbook of the rabbis, represents, among other things, the messianic era. (coughs) Elijah is the one who will come and introduce the messianic era, which is to say that Elijah is a redemptive personality, (coughs) and Elijah moments are redeeming moments. The Bible has stories of several water splitters, actually two pairs of water splitters. The first pair is Moses and Joshua. Moses, who splits the Sea of Reeds, bringing the people from Egypt into the wilderness. Joshua, who, with a somewhat different contrivance, nevertheless, he splits the waters of the Jordan River and brings the people from their wilderness wandering into the land of Israel. Well, that's one pair of water splitters. The other pair of water splitters is Elijah and his disciple, Elisha. Elijah splits the water at the end of his life. He and his disciple, Elisha, are walking towards the Jordan River, in some ways retracing the route from the inner part of the land to the place where Joshua had crossed the Jordan River and split the water once before. Elisha knows that Elijah will be parted from him at that point, that Elijah is going wherever he's going. And when they reached the Jordan River, Elijah took off his cloak and hit the water with it. The water split, and he and Elisha walked across on dry ground. After Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot drawn by fiery horses... His cloak fluttered to the ground. Elisha picked up the cloak, turned around, hit the water of the Jordan one more time. It split again. And Elisha, having literally and figuratively inherited the mantle of his teacher and master, crossed back over. So two pairs of water splitters. All of them went the way of the world. All of them died except for one. Only Elijah And Elijah, we could say, how could one break the gravitational field of the world? How is it that Elijah doesn't die? Well, we hear this story of Elijah being assumed, taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot, and that kind of assumption draws an assumption. If there was actually an obituary, we would have seen film at 11. Is it even 11 here? No, it's probably not 11 here. It's it's an East Coast thing. It's 11? Wow. But but there is no film at 11. The rabbis, the ancient sages, when I say the rabbis, I mean ancient sages of the first centuries of the common era. But even before that, let's say from the second century before the common era to the third or fourth century, fifth century of the common era, primarily that's the the time of which I'm, I'm speaking. They insist that this is enough of a story This is enough of an excuse, an alibi, an opening to open the door for Elijah to escape the gravitational field of the world and that Elijah continues to continue and he embodies, therefore, all of those things that are important. 
about the ongoing civilizations of the Jews, not just one civilization, but many civilizations. There are Hebrew songs and Arabic songs and Aramaic songs and Ladino songs and Spanish songs and German songs uh, and on and on. There are Italian songs and English songs about Elijah. He continues to live and flourish in all of the cultures, in all of the civilizations of the Jews. So, um, with that in mind, I brought you a couple of pages of the family album. How else to talk about it? Rabbinic literature is, in an important way, our family album. At least it's part of our family album. It is not, my teacher Mordechai Kaplan taught, it's not the only part of chapter of the family album. We add our own pages. But adding our own pages doesn't mean that we should be uh, oblivious to or overlook the pages that are the well-illuminated pages of, uh, of, of ancient texts. They have what to teach us. So I brought you two such two pages from the family album. On one side, well, the side with which we will start says Voices in the Ruins. I haven't said anything nice about Rabbi Renner yet. Would you remind me at the uh, somewhere along the way? Uh, to, to set, I'm trying to think about something nice to say as we as we go along. Um, how much time do we have, by the way? How much time do I have to think of this? I don't know. Another 45 minutes. <laughs> Okay, uh, I'm unencumbered. I'm not wearing a watch or anything. So you'll just tell me when we're about five minutes a, a, away, okay? Um, that'll be great. By then I will have thought of something nice to say. All right. But for now, first century sage, Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi said, Once I was traveling and I entered one of the ruins of Jerusalem to pray. Elijah always remembered for the good, came and waited for me at the entrance until I had finished my prayer. After I finished my prayer, he said to me, Shalom Aleicha, my master. I answered, Shalom Aleicha, my master and my teacher. He said to me, My son, why did you enter this ruin? To pray, I replied. Said Elijah, You should have prayed on the road. I was afraid, said I, lest the passers-by interrupt me. He said to me, you should have prayed a shortened prayer. And so I learned three things from him. I learned that one does not enter a ruin. I learned that one prays on the road. And I learned that one who prays on the road prays a shortened prayer. My son, Elijah continued, what sound did you hear in that ruin? I told him, I heard a heavenly voice cooing like a dove and saying, Woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burned my temple and exiled them among the nations. By your life and breath, said he, it is not only in that moment that she cries so. It's every day, three times a day, that she coos like a dove. Woo! Woo! 
to the children. And not only that, but whenever Israel enters its synagogues and study houses and recites the Kaddish, saying, Yehei Shemei Hagadol Mevorach, may his great name be blessed, the Blessed Holy One shakes his head and says, Happy is the king who is thus praised in his house. What a thing for the father who banished his children to hear. Woe to those children who are banished from their father's table. And there the curtain comes down on our story. Well, if I ask a question, Bert, you're the technical person here. Are people... Is the universe going to be able to hear? Will there be people in the outer reaches of the galaxy who will hear? Wow. Bert promised me that extraterrestrial creatures will be listening in, learning everything that they can about Judaism from your podcasts. Well, what gets your attention in the story? Something. (laughs) I got attention from, strangely, from the practicality of the first advice, which was you don't have to pray in Jerusalem. You can pray on the road. And if you're going to pray on the road be aware your prayer might have to be shortened. Very practical advice. (coughs) I remember Willie May. I never knew her last name, but Willie May cleaned our house when I was uh, a teenager. And when I went off to Israel for a semester, I took Willie May to the bus stop that day, the last day that I was going to see her for six months. She treated me like I was her nephew. And I remember getting out of the car to give her a big hug at the bus stop, and she grabbed my hand in hers, and she said, Be good, look both ways, and don't forget to pray. (laughs) That's what Willie May said to me. Practical advice. Uh, That was in 1971. I remember that. What does that mean? What does it mean that I remember it? It was the right advice at the right moment. I didn't know that I had already developed such a talent for prayer and such an interest in such things. But I had. Going to Israel was a a symptom just beginning to make itself apparent. So what she said hooked me in a way. I'm going to suggest to you, and I'll remind you about it perhaps at the end, that this was a moment that the rabbis called Gilui Eliyahu. This was an Elijah moment. And for a brief moment, Willie May was Elijah. This was a redemptive moment. Elijah is the master of disguises, after all. Have you ever met Elijah anyplace? Has Elijah ever given you the practical advice that you needed that just undercut every other thing and every other concern? Somebody who gave you the right direction, the right attitude? An administrator, a nurse, a cab driver, a bus driver, 
Somebody? You know, this is sort of a strange story, but I had two sisters as we were growing up. We had few rules in our house, but the one rule we had is that we had, you know, Friday night for Shabbat dinner. And that was the rule. The only other rule was that we had to wear skirts on, at, to dinner. And the transformative thing was we would come in all sorts of interesting get-ups, but at least we were wearing skirts. And this sort of stuck with me all these years. I don't know, whenever we talk about stuff like this, it just sort of pops into my head. Some sort of respect, some sort of remote um, uh, standout moment for mm-hmm. us to pay attention to what's going on around us. So, it, Yes. Uh, uh, constancy and also change. Yeah. You had to wear a skirt and you had to be home on Friday night. What kind of skirt it was, what it looked like, how wild a configuration of uh, colors, that didn't matter. You could exercise your own judgment about that. But there were certain things that needed to be in place. And you remember that there's something about the stability of that that is a very, very fond memory. And if you ever rolled your eyes about it, or if you ever felt like you wanted to rebel about it at some point in your childhood, all of that's been bleached out at this point, really. And what remains is this stability. And a a life lesson that was learned in that moment and through that thing. Here's Rabbi Yossi, who says... I met Elijah and he taught me three things. Now, Rabbi Yossi, a sage, as I say, of the first century, has a lot of very smart uh, colleagues who are uh, who live very much in the world, in the scientific and the empirical world. Do you notice that, at least as far as our storyteller is concerned, nobody says to Rabbi Yossi, how did you know it was Elijah? Come on, how did you know? Nobody asks him that question. I allow, I indulge myself in the following possibility, that there is a conspiracy towards wonderment here, that his colleagues want it to be Elijah, that he wants it, needs it to be Elijah. There are a lot of stories that tell us that Rabbi Yossi and Elijah knew each other, that they learned together, that they hung out together, at least from time to time. But maybe he didn't recognize that it was Elijah, or maybe this story is part of another tradition. If I allow myself to see it as part of another tradition, then I can imagine, and as I make the movie version of this, I encourage you to make the movie version of the stories, of the Torah stories, of the narratives, of rabbinic stories. Making the movie version means, this is a big L.A. thing to do, isn't it? means that you have to cast the role of Elijah. Who plays Elijah? Anybody? Any, I mean, who? Oh, anybody can. Uh-huh, yes, well, good. <laughs> anybody can. But th- think about it. it in, in some version of your story, of, your, of an Elijah story, when we think about who plays the role, then we add uh, vocal color and texture and height and stance and, and st- stature of various kinds uh, into this. Well, Rabbi Yossi maybe knew it was Elijah, maybe he didn't know, maybe he came to know because he had entered into this ruin to pray, and somebody came. In my movie version, there are several movie versions of it, and one of them... Uh, he sees a shadow. He's in a ruin in, in Jerusalem, and he's 
praying and he sees a shadow in his peripheral vision. Uh, and it makes him tense up because this is precisely one of the reasons why you shouldn't go into a ruin. As your mother would always say, don't go into a ruin. Yeah. Because it may be that this is a place where somebody is lurking, bandits and, and so on, drug dealers. But this shadow isn't approaching him, and so he becomes more uh, accepting of it and even imagines that this shadow belongs to somebody of substance who has his back, literally. Or perhaps he actually sees someone in front of him who's standing at the doorway and waits for him. Waits for him on the threshold. Elijah on the threshold, is that familiar? Absolutely. It's where Elijah appears. Just where the door opens to possibility. You might not think that the moment is as easy as in and out. But with Elijah there, it might be. Or maybe there's a way in or a way out that you weren't imagining. Practical advice. Back to what what Bert is, but uh, what Bert was saying. Thanks for getting us off on on, on, on this aspect of it. Um, you shouldn't have been in that ruin. You pray on the road. Well, I was afraid I might be interrupted. Then you should pray a shortened prayer. Well, uh, this is the practical advice that cuts through any other consideration. Why did he go into that ruin? The way this story is set in the rabbinic literature in the Talmud, the way the story is set, there's a debate before it, there's a whole reflection before this about whether or not you should go into a ruin. It might be that there are demons, it might be that there are varmints, critters, it might be that there are drug dealers, it might be that whatever blasted out this ruin, if it's, if it's a ruin of Jerusalem at the end of the first century, it was destroyed by the, by the Romans the as the temple was destroyed. Ah, and maybe... Assumption this is the temple? Is there an assumption that this is the temple? Could you imagine that at least for our storyteller that this ruin is a stand-in for the temple? The Hebrew word for destruction is a word that's used oftentimes to describe the destruction of the temple. And that's a word that's used here. One of the ruins of Jerusalem, the story says, but perhaps it's a stand-in for the temple. Rabbi Yossi might well know the debate. He might well know what the sages, what his colleagues are saying. And still he has decided that he's going to go into the ruin. What do you think of that decision? Why would he... Why would he do that? I can't prove that that's what he's what he's done in 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 light of uh, um, there's just the story that's in front of us. But I like the way the drama unfolds, <laughs> given that possibility. If the ruin is the past, if, if that's what it is, then there may be that huge attraction of the past to him, and maybe what Elijah's saying is the road which is how you get to the future, is where he needed to be. He needed to be on the road. And yet, what about the scenic detour? Those of us who live close to uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway on our side of the country, or those of you who live on the Pacific Coast Highway on your side of the country, can you pull off the road and just look? views that are almost fattening, you know, almost caloric. And so, 
What? You go because it's there. You go because it's there. <clears throat> Those pull-offs are precisely so that you don't have to risk somebody coming around the curve while you're praying or while you're meditating or while you're making whatever bracha you make in the presence of such grandeur. <coughs> uh, but did Rabbi Yossi, despite, despite the conventional wisdom that you should stay on the road, did Rabbi Yossi say, no, that's not, my spiritual life requires something other. I know what people are saying, and I have to go into the ruins. Just like I've read that we can't always wait to get to a synagogue to pray and having a siddur in front of us. That praying involves uh, personal struggles on times of tension when you're away from a synagogue or by yourself. And maybe going into a room is a metaphor for... uh, Difficulties in life and stress, and sometimes we are not in the most positive, welcoming, peaceful environment when we need to pray. And maybe, thank you so much. And maybe our prayer, the prayer that we need for the moment, or the attitude that we're bringing into our prayer, is not peaceful altogether. Maybe we actually need a place that is provocative or a place where we can cry, a place where the prayer can come out, expressing loyalty or expressing the rhythm of the constancy of our prayer life, and at the same time hold a kind of ambivalence about the whole thing, after all, or be worried. Is it possible that Rabbi Yossi would say, you know what, sometimes you need to pray in a ruin? It's an interesting thing to be in Jerusalem, or not just Jerusalem, it's the ancient city, the ancient and modern city that I know the best. I know that in Los Angeles, people are not so comfortable living amongst their ruins. I mean, they really aren't ruins. But Jerusalem is another whole attitude. To live amongst the ruins, the ruins are in some ways venerated. The ruins help move the past into the future. They do. And you can actually touch them. I mean, we've touched them, haven't we? Nick and I and a bunch of us who went to Israel in 2001, was it, uh, actually got some of the ash on our fingers from a burnt uh, and fallen roof beam in the old city of Jerusalem that was destroyed in August, September of the year 70 when the temple was destroyed. Actually, look at this. Put this on your fingers and, and smell it. Can you smell a little bit? If you hold it to your ear, can you hear the destruction of the temple? Can you smell the destruction, the sulfurous ruins, the popping of limestone? Can you imagine yourself in the ruins? Rabbi Yossi, just decades after the destruction of the temple, perhaps decades, maybe not even a decade after, yeah, decades after the destruction of these at the very end of the first century, he's there in Jerusalem and he feels like he needs to go into this ruin in order to pray. And so he does. Perhaps he even knows what his colleagues are saying about it. But tell me you've never taken a risk for the, for, for the, be- for the, uh, the benefit of a, of a particular moment or an experience. Everybody has. So, Rabbi Yossi receives the reprimand, as it were, or the correction of Elijah, and reports this to his colleagues, and 
confirms what it is that they already know, and yet, and yet, after he sums up this learning. So I learned three things from him. I learned that one does not enter a ruin. I learned that one prays on the road. I learned that one who prays on the road prays a shortened prayer. End of story. But no, not for Rabbi Yossi and not for our storyteller. My son, Elijah, continued, what sound did you hear in that ruin? You must have heard, you shouldn't have been there. But as long as you were, what did you hear? Do you get the sense that there's something to learn in that ruin? Feels like it. As long as you were there, let me ask you, what did you hear? Says Rabbi Yossi, well, it's a funny thing now that you mention it. I heard a heavenly voice cooing like a dove saying, Woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burned my temple and exiled them among the nations. What about that? I didn't read it with the right kind of passion, the right kind of pathos. Woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burned my temple, exiled them among the nations. Woe! Woe to the children! Who's saying this? In the language of the rabbis, this is a bat kol. Bat, daughter. Kol, voice. This is the way the rabbis talk about the divine voice after prophecy. It's an echo of a voice, the daughter of a voice. It is inspiration, not authority. <clears throat> what about God? What about God's attitude here? What do you does this does this astound you? Does it disturb you? Does it surprise you? It's not the way you think about God. I don't think about you it. would expect God to be more judgmental about it. I would say, look what you did. Look what you did. You did, not look what I did. Yeah. What you did. Yeah. You destroyed my temple. You did this. You did that. <clears throat> you your, did it. Your actions. Your yeah. lack of actions. Yeah. Well, this is quite an astounding thing for Rabbi Yossi to say, well, I heard it. I heard it in the ruin. A God who is, how would you characterize this? Ambivalent? God who is upset? Not the God who's definitively judgmental. They did it. This is a ruin because they made it a ruin. No. Woe to the children on account of whose sins I destroyed my house and burned my temple and exiled them among the nations. They made me... I had to, I, this is the inexorable flow of history. This had to happen because of things that they did. And I was therefore forced to act in a particular way. That's what I heard. 
And whether Rabbi Yossi really heard that exactly, or did he hear, ooh, did he hear a dove? But now that Elijah has asked him this question, Elijah, no one less than Elijah the prophet, after Elijah has asked him, that woo of the morning dove, literally the morning dove, now becomes something that he could have only dared to imagine. That God himself, God herself, God itself is ambivalent, is mourning, wishes it could have been otherwise. If he hadn't gone into this ruin that represents, let's say, represents the temple, certainly represents the destruction of Jerusalem, he never would have heard that. Gift, burden, responsibility, whatever, or all three, the storyteller is sharing it with us. Can you live in a world with a God who says, I'm not in control of everything? Reconstructionism can. <laughs> Apparently this story can also. What I can't. I know what the text says, I just don't know what it means. God would say. I need you to tell me what it means. How am I supposed to know what it means? I don't have to worry about keeping Shabbos. The elevators up here run, stopping at every floor all the time. In the heavens. But he has an override solution. He has the override. Ah, but would God ever use the override in an emergency, let's say. But uh, Are you saying that this says that God is neither omnipotent nor omniscient? I didn't say that? it. The storyteller said. <laughs> are, are you saying that the storyteller is saying that? I think the storyteller is... Those are not categories that are interesting to the storyteller. The storyteller's God is a God who regrets, a God who is upset, a God who sees forces enacted by human beings that can't be stemmed. They made this happen and I responded in a way that I had to that I had to respond in reconstructionist terms as I said the inexorable march of history this is, you make a bad foreign policy decision this is what happens you think Jeremiah tried to tell you that you couldn't outfight the Babylonians you decided to try something else in your hubris in your pride uh, in back in the in, in the uh, destruction of the of, of the of the first temple, uh, destruction of the second temple, the same thing with the Romans. You thought you should fight the Romans. That the that Jerusalem, that the temple was some kind of talisman that was going to protect you. Wrong. That was not going to happen. How does Rabbi Yossi? How do people of his generation? How do people who believe in the kinds of ways in which he and they believe? How does he come to terms with a God who is powerful and yet does not exercise power in this particular way? Who doesn't overcome history but lives within history? How can Rabbi Yossi do that? Uh, his, he and his colleagues. This is ever present on their minds. Certainly when they're coming to Jerusalem. And they're standing there in front of the evidence of that which was once great and, and has now been laid waste. And so omnipotent, omniscient, not seeing any signs of that God, uh, not in, not in the story. And Elijah says, oh, you got that right, man. In North Carolina language, you say, Elijah would, would say, you ain't saying nothing. You ain't saying nothing. By your life and breath, said he, it's not only in that moment that she cries so, it's every day and three times a day that she coos like a dove. Now, this is Elijah who's adding on 
Was Elijah ready to tell Rabbi Yossi anything other than shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't? This is what you do. This is what you do. This is what you do. No, the rest of it all came because of what Rabbi Yossi says he heard in the ruins. But Elijah's ready to pull that out. Woo! To the children. And not only that, but whenever Israel enters its synagogues and study houses, ah, this really tugs at your heartstrings. Three times a day when people gather in the synagogues or in the study house in order to, to learn and to pray and to pray and to proclaim the greatness of the great name, Yehei Shemei Rabbah Mavarach and so on, uh, say Kaddish, God says, oh, doesn't that just tear your heart out? And then states again the ambivalence. Happy is the king who is thus praised in his house. Oh, happy. What a thing for a father who banished his children to hear. Woe to those children who are banished from their father's table. Happy, sad, ambivalent. And then the curtain comes down on the story. Yeah, there is the halachic measure. There is. This is what you do. This is the manual. This is what, where you pray. This is how you do it. But beyond that, as long as you're in the ruins anyway, you should learn something from being there. And metaphor, of course. This story, as in all of these stories, and all of the stories of Elijah, are precisely where the meta meets the four. It's exactly what they are. (coughs) This is meta and also not. (laughs) This is the real thing. I forget who wrote it. It was right to kill the bird who brought the wind and fog. It was wrong to kill the bird who brought the sun and wind. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. You mentioned those times that we've come up to Elijah who may have had some advice for us and not realized it was Elijah. Uh, and my question is, what about the times that perhaps we are Elijah? Please consider it. Thank you. That's a gift to the group. Is there a time when you have been Elijah? Well, I'm entirely too modest just to claim that. No, don't be too modest. There are times when I would say um, one time a year, somewhere between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Put yourself at the center of your own Elijah story, of your own Hasidic story. <coughs> you deserve it. We deserve it. You are Elijah to somebody else, have been Elijah to somebody else. Elijah moments happen quite often. They flourish where people don't know each other. The, well, uh, the well-timed appropriate, and appropriate moment, but unplanned. And perhaps the moment doesn't ripen into, Elijah mo- into an Elijah moment until memory makes it happen. But you have been Elijah. We have been Elijah for others. Educators call, use the term teachable moment. And that in life, we never know when we go down the road and uh, figuratively, we never know how we're going to be affected by some experience or we will impact somebody else in our life. And it could be a child that could influence us. I mean, 
a, a godly moment. I, I had to. Uh, I had my. I was out to lunch with a two and a half year old grandson, <coughs> and as we were eating pizza and drinking, he puts his glass down. and He says, "You know, Papa, I really like being with you." To me, that was a godly moment. I mean, I. I, I he's six now. I don't think I'll ever forget that experience and what those words meant. And sometimes we don't want to go visit people, we don't want to do things, yet when we go, you guys say, God, that was, that was a wonderful experience. So the neat thing about life is that you can sometimes help evoke these experiences, sometimes they just happen by chance, but we never know when these moments will occur. That's a be- that's a, a lovely story, yeah. cutting to the heart of something of who you, not not just of of what you are, but also who you are, uh, in the through the eyes of of a, of a little child, uh, to affirm the worth of somebody, to have that happen when you're not expecting it, uh, and perhaps when you need it. Maybe you didn't even know how much you needed it until you actually until that moment came. Thought I saw another, another hand. But you, you get, you're certainly getting the, uh, getting the idea. Elijah is again the deep commitment. He rep- Elijah represents the deep commitment to religious imagination in Jewish tradition. Elijah sometimes appears as a man in Jewish stories. Oftentimes, that's the truth. But sometimes as a woman, Elijah has appeared at, in in ancient stories as a, an Arab soldier as a sideshow snake oil salesman, uh, as a traveling merchant, uh, as a sage, as a fool, as a beggar, as a pauper. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes at the doorway. And you may find that that's where you have met Elijah uh, many, many times yourself. So here is an Elijah who reminds us along the way now, there is a way of traveling, there's a way of staying on the road, but if something leads you into the ruin, or if the world conspires in such a way that there is a ruin, don't forget to learn something from it. You might not have chosen to be here, or it might not be the best place for you, but what did you learn while you were there? That oftentimes is the way in which these the, the lesson uh, of, of or a lesson of this story is learned. How are we doing on the time? Yeah, a few minutes before eight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, the only way to get out of such a rich story as this one is to just turn the page. Because <laughs> otherwise, and it would be okay if we just stayed with it for the next for the next little bit, but I'm eager to just share with you one other story that is not quite such a narrative. Uh, this story has more of a, uh, of a communal legal uh, value attached to it. It has to do with who gets to decide whether you make improvements in your condo development. In a gated community, in some kind of a collective enterprise, who gets to decide whether you need a new sprinkler system? or whether you need new security, whether you need a new gate, let's say, or in this case, a gatehouse. You think this is a modern problem, but it is not. Here it is in the Talmud, 
A resident of a courtyard community may be compelled by other residents to contribute to the building of a gatehouse and a door for the courtyard. Everybody's living in a courtyard, uh, houses connected and adjacent. This would seem to show that a gatehouse is an improvement. Well, I mean, you can't expect for the condo boards to approve something that's not going to be an improvement. Um, This would seem to show that a gatehouse is an improvement. Yet how can this be? After all, there was a certain pious man with whom Elijah used to converse regularly until that man built a gatehouse, after which Elijah didn't come to speak with him anymore. You really taking a story about Elijah not coming to visit you, not bringing your paper up to the front door? You're taking that to the condo board? That really is a, this is proof? This is legal proof? This is social proof? This is communal evidence? Uh, in light of this, a gatehouse could not be an improvement. If Elijah's gonna stop coming to see you if you build a gatehouse, that can't be an improvement. Um, And in a world where Elijah is a very important and flourishing character, that is all you need to say. Now, shuttle uh, many years into the future. I'll presume upon you for for five more minutes. Is that going to work okay for you? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Many years into the future, in 1981, Stephen Klein's bar mitzvah happened at, uh, at our synagogue in Durham, North Carolina. And when the dust cleared... Uh, and all of the confetti was, um, no, it wasn't confetti, but when everything was cleaned up, there was a talus that was left in the sanctuary. It was a beautiful Israeli talus, Gabrielli talus, silver and gold and white. And I called the family and said, uh, somebody left this beautiful talus. Nobody in the family seemed to have left it. Well, I put an ad in the synagogue bulletin. That was way before there was you know, instant communication. Nobody claimed it. I wore it for a month thinking, well, somebody's going to, you know, see it. Now, having a talus like this left lying around was virtually impossible, it seemed to me. This is like your good camera that you leave someplace and when you, and then you fail to retrace your steps or you forget one major place where you might have used that camera. Uh, somebody went to Shoal, had the talus, got home, didn't have the talus anymore, what do you think? Unless you took it into Taco Bell with you, you know, and sat on it or something like that, it's got to be in the show. This is a very expensive talus. Nobody claimed it. But in, in, in my world, in my world of religious imagination, under such circumstances, there can only be one answer. Elijah. Yes. And Elijah left the talus. And that has governed the use of the talus ever since. I'm no longer the rabbi of that synagogue, but the rabbi of the synagogue is the custodian of Elijah's talus. And that talus is used to put on a chair that sits in front of the ark, that sits in front, and that chair uh, uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, excuse me, between, between the beginning of Elul and Yom Kippur, so that people can come in and sit in that Elijah's chair covered by Elijah's talus right in front of the ark, and have a conversation that needs to be had. That talus is used as a chuppah. It's used to wrap babies in when they're carried to their naming. It's used as a chair of Elijah at a brit milah. Those are the only uses for the past three and a half decades. Those are the only uses of that talus, and the synagogue keeps it. And ask anybody about the talus of Elijah, 
of Eliyahu and Avi, and they're going to know. There's something about Eliyahu in the religious imagination. And here it is, right here, all these centuries ago. Would Elijah, why would Elijah stop coming, express his displeasure over a gatehouse unless it wasn't an improvement? But a gatehouse seems like it should be an improvement, but Elijah's not coming anymore, so that's evidence that it's not an improvement. There's no contradiction here, the text says. A gatehouse built within the courtyard's perimeter would be an improvement. Such a gatehouse would make it possible for a poor man to make himself heard within. But because this man built a gatehouse that protruded from the courtyard, not the old footprint, Elijah refused to come anymore. If you like, I can say that in both cases the gatehouse was built protruding from the courtyard, and still there's no difficulty One would not be an improvement while the other would be an improvement. In the one case of which Elijah disapproved, there was a door, and in the other there was no door, just a vestibule that allowed entrance into the waiting area from outside. Or again, we may suppose that in both cases there was a door, and still there is no difficulty in determining why Elijah would come or choose not to come. In one case there was a latch, and in the other case there was no latch. Or... Again, I may say that in both cases there is a latch, and still there's no difficulty because in the one case the latch was on inside the door. Elijah doesn't like that. In the other, it was on the outside. What are the features that Elijah likes? They're all about hospitality, (coughs) inclusion. We understand the need for security, but... How about the poor? How about need? How about access? How about intimacy? Are there risks involved? Absolutely. But, and and should you be building, is a gatehouse an improvement? Yes, but it's only an improvement if it straddles this interesting line between what it means to take care of yourself in the physical sense and what it means to take care of yourself in a broad, rich, inviting, hospitable, imaginative sense as well. That's why I call this piece Elijah Blueprints. What does it mean? Something something for renovation committees to think about when rooms of a synagogue, let's say, get renovated. What's the difference between a synagogue and, and, and some other building in terms of how its structure gets changed? Well, there are codes, of course. There are building codes. But how about Elijah? In what sort of room does Elijah flourish? And what sort of doorways can you expect to meet Elijah? Elijah appears at the door, the gate of the cave of Shimon Bar Yochai in ancient stories. He appears uh, at the uh, post and lintel structures, uh, uh, ornate and decorated in Moorish Spain, and before that in ancient Greece, and after that in Durham, North Carolina, or in Pacific Palisades at Pesach time. There he is. There he is. Do you want to keep him out? Is there a risk opening the door for Elijah to the Passover at the Passover Seder? Is there a security breach? Do we weigh and reckon? Well, Elijah is also a master of questions. Teku, the rabbis say, is a Talmudic formulation at the end of a debate at which, for which there is no answer. Say the rabbis or say some interpreters, that word teku, which means it's a draw, stands for the Tishabite will come and answer our questions. Until then, the questions will persist. 
Well, here's Elijah. I hope we can see just by looking at a couple of pa- couple of pages in the ancient family album that there is what to consider about this extraordinary and important character. There are people whom we meet along the way who are Elijah-like, who are Elijah, who represent for us and to us the uh, the presence of deep imagination and possibility, redemptive moments. Those are precious. And we all have our stories. Willie May, I told you I'd remind you at the end. Willie May, yeah, in my memory, even though she spent her days cleaning the house, her clothes were always white. They never seemed to be smudged. Hmm. It's a little bit more of an Elijah glow about, uh, about this woman uh, as I tell the story and think about it more and more and more. Well, we'll close the, uh, we'll close the album here and I, uh, I will say that we need our guides. We need our stories as guides. We need our guides as guides. We need our guides as stories. Uh, some of the work that I'm doing with uh, Rabbi Renner is work that explores stories such as these, uh, stories about what it means to be inside and outside, stories of the door, stories of the gate, stories of the liminal moment, the threshold moments. Uh, we're spending a whole year learning on that theme, and then we'll turn this learning into a project that will not only continue to enrich uh, him and myself, but also you. Uh, and he will become, and has become already, uh, part of the imaginative structure of this place. A better fellow traveler I really can't imagine that uh, imagine you could have. I should probably send you some of the recommendations that I've written for Nick over the years. I'm honored that he has asked me to write him recommendations to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, to the Bronfman Fellowship Program, um, I don't remember. I have them all, but and I don't think I've ever shown them to you. No, because you were uh, kind enough and decorous enough, proper enough to waive your right to see them, trusting me that I would write something, that I would lie on your behalf in a good way. <laughs> so far, it's worked. <laughs> but I should maybe send you some of those letters. I've been I've been rereading them. Uh, you might like to see. You might like to see. We uh, don't need them. We've already experienced them. Uh huh. So here, you know him too well, perhaps, for him to be in an ongoing way, Elijah. But he is a guide to Elijah moments. There are things to experience. There are moments to share that are bigger than the sum of their parts. And to have somebody who is able to meet Elijah along the way and to experience that is that's a real treasure. Uh, and you have it. And I'm in your debt for inviting me to meet this lovely group this evening. And I'll look forward to uh, uh, I'll look forward to coming back. Hey, 